Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the fourth sermon in our sermon series of the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, page 1028 in your pew Bible. It is John's account of his commissioning to write by the Lord Jesus. Now last Sunday you may recall how we examined his greeting to his letter, how he opens with a standard letter greeting of the time period. He addresses seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor in what is now Western Turkey. We saw how John's choice of seven and the order of their names reflected both the theological in taking the Old Testament sign of fullness in the number and the practical as the order revealed the well-traveled route through the region. We concluded that this letter is both for the universal church and for specific local churches. Now we also saw how John enhanced the traditional thanksgiving prayer that concludes a greeting. His addition of peace, the Hebrew translation of shalom, underlines the one who is bringing both Old Testament prophecy to its fulfillment. And then we look more closely at the manner in which John describes God in his use of the title. The shalom is brought by the sovereign Lord, who, the one who is, was, and is to come. In other words, he will easily deliver his people, despite what seems to us as overwhelming human odds, despite the opposition Shalom is guaranteed. He points to the sovereign Lord over all history. And next, that the source of the prophetic message is not only from God and Christ, but also from the seven spirits, that is, the the Holy Spirit before the throne. Therefore, the believer is confident that the message is trustworthy and true. John next spends more time on three titles that describes Jesus' person, how he has testified and so suffered, like so many of John's first audience, that he has risen from the dead, a promise of hope to that audience. And now he reigns an assurance against their persecutors. Therefore, the fact that Christ now rules reveals again that the events that are unfolding are present realities. They're underway in this inaugurated age which began with our Savior's ascension. Each title is specific to minister to the believer in trial, testifying, rising from the dead, and reigning. It shouldn't surprise us then that a reflection upon these titles and the person of the Godhead as a whole 
leads John, as the believer, to praise. And so because he sees this comprehensive glory of God, he shifts to a song of praise. That concludes his greeting. He assigns three actions, three gospel indicatives, in other words, to Jesus. Jesus loves us. He freed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom of priests. Now, Jesus' love for us, as you can see, is expressed in his death as sacrifice, as our substitute. In other words, while we're still sinners, as Paul writes, Christ died for us. He has freed us, notice past tense, by his blood, his death being a sacrifice. In other words, he is both priest and spotless lamb. And so John introduces this image to which he will return again and again, both priest and victim, the lamb who was slain. Moving from the image of temple and sacrifice, much like the letter to the Hebrews does, John also declares that Jesus made us a kingdom and priests, reminding us that salvation does not end with our accepting Jesus as our Savior, as it were. But he saves us for a purpose, a, an individual vocation, to be his agents, to spread the gospel, to be his worshipers, to bring him glory. So the believer who has identified with Christ as a priest now exercises the role of a priest in intercession, in faithful witness, and in praise and worship. We're willing to suffer for Christ because we are those faithful witnesses. Now John's praise of the Lord Jesus spills over for him to take up two Old Testament quotations as he ends. The first is Daniel 7, verse 13, the enthronement of the Son of Man over the nations. And the second is Zechariah 12, 10, which refers to the end-time victory of Israel over those nations. There is a repentance before the Lord for the children of Israel, whom the people of Israel have pierced. As our principle has shown us, John universalizes all of this. The house of David mourning the firstborn son makes all the peoples of the earth do so and adds that every eye shall see him. But was Israel becomes all the peoples of the earth who having received Christ and are now baptized by his spirit in his grace. In other words, all true believers mourn over what was done to him. Both quotes are made real to us because in this inaugurated age, the Lord Jesus comes continually to the churches as both their savior and as a judge. He comes in the word preached, in which the heart of the hearer is prepared by the spirit who hears Christ speak to them, in the sacraments faithfully administered, so the believer is raised to Christ where he is, receiving by his senses what her ear has heard. And Christ is coming in salvation and regeneration brought by the power of the Spirit. That is why he now uses the title Alpha and Omega, like the one who is, was, and who is to come, the eternality of God's 
condition, that all history from beginning to end is the same to him. Thus, his people need not fear. If something might happen to them apart from God's plan, it is impossible, John says. And so now we come to our text this evening in verses 9 through 20. In them, we see how the risen Christ appears to John to commission him to write Revelation. And so the commission that Jesus gives to John is his accurate narrative so that the saints can endure faithfully and that his message is made compelling by the glory of the risen Christ. So we have these three parts. First, it's John's commission to write in verses 9 through 11. Now, we learn first in those verses that John is marking, setting aside the Lord's Day. In other words, Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. And we learn that John has been exiled to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea because of his testimony to Jesus. And he writes to the churches facing tribulation and persecution. His condition, in other words, is one who is under trial. But notice how, telling his condition, John identifies with his fellow believers as their brother and partner, but in a specific way. Everyone who is born again is now part of the family of God in Christ Jesus, but he or she is also John's partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are all found in Jesus. He is their partner because the kingdom of Jesus is one that is entered through the patient's endurance of trial. It is quite simple, isn't it? That when one receives the gospel for the first time and trusts in Christ, there is a great deconstruction that is underway. Indeed, depending upon God's plan in your life, when you first became a believing Christian, you could find your entire world blown apart and then rebuilt in the image of your Savior. Consider the irony and the contrast here between worldly kingdoms which promise peace but bring oppression and fear in a quest for rule, whereas the kingdom of God promises trial but delivers peace and confidence to those who patiently endure. In other words, our best life is not now, but our best life as believers begins when the veil of this world is pulled away. And so we are to be encouraged as believers because to endure trial is to join the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As 1 Peter 4.16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, let him glorify God in that name. Now also notice next how in verse 11, John tells us the reason he wrote the letter of Revelation was very simple. It's because the risen Jesus told him, commanded him to do so. Write what you see in a book and send it. 
all imperatives. We see John's obedience and his response, don't we? Not his wild imagination. In other words, Revelation exists for us because Jesus commanded John to write. And you and I are believers because Jesus is the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name, and we follow him. Indeed, missionaries go to the ends of the earth because Jesus said, go, make disciples. Christians are faithful in marriage because Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Christians love one another because Jesus commanded, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. People repent of their sins and trust in Jesus because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We must also, therefore, consider the opposite. If one refuses to do the things Christ has commanded to trust in him, to love one another, be faithful to one's spouse, to make disciples, we are actually rejecting the words of the risen Christ. He is the one who speaks, no one else. Therefore, John hears Jesus' commission and responds obediently. Next, we have John's visible description of the risen Jesus in verses 12 through 16. Now, notice the startling statement in verse 12. John turned to see the voice. John heard a loud voice like a trumpet, and he turned to see who was speaking. But on turning, he doesn't see the person, but he sees instead what? Seven golden lampstands. Now, the number seven should trip our exegetical sensors into red alert, shouldn't it? Because John is alluding to what Zechariah saw in Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 14. John experiences the fulfillment of what Zechariah witnesses. The Old Testament prophet describes the renewal of God's presence with his people in the rebuilding of the temple after the exile. He also notices two olive trees that flank the seven stands in his vision. They represent symbolically, he's told, the anointed priesthood, Joshua, in Zechariah's case, and kingship, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the descendant of David. Now it finds fulfillment in what John sees, which is why John's description of what he sees continues in verse 13 in this way. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, the quote, like a son of man, Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So taking Zechariah and Daniel as one, we can see that John describes the Lord as both in a kingly sense and in a priestly one. Kingly because of Daniel's vision and the symbolic 
uh, olive tree of Zechariah, and the Ancient of Days that crowns him, the like of Son of Man, and then the priestly robe that he wears in his golden sash, tending the firelight of the lamp, standing in the holy place of the temple, like Joshua in Zechariah's case. He stands, in other words, in the midst of the churches, believers. He stands in our midst, watching, guarding, fulfilling his continual work on our behalf. And next, in verse 14, John unfurls the banner of our Savior's divinity. He does this by going on and describing Jesus in in terms of the descriptions we find in Daniel 7. The hair of his head was like pure wool. So when John writes of Jesus that his hairs were, of his head were white like wool, like snow, he's using the same frame of reference as you find in Daniel 7. And his description continues as he now adds in Daniel 10, where he describes Jesus in verse 14 as one having eyes like a flame of fire. He's declaring a simple reality here in gathering up Daniel, but also affirming what Daniel does, that there is nothing that escapes him, his all-searching, pure gaze over all the world and the cosmos. So what are its implications for us as believers? First, no sin that we commit will ever escape his notice. No sin will escape his notice. Second, he will see every faithful thing his people do. Every faithful thing his people do. And three, he will note every injustice done to his people by their enemies. Next, in verse 15, Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This is the absolute purity of the Son of Man, of the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and ascended. His voice, like a loud trumpet in verse 10, is, as we saw previously, God's voice at Mount Sinai. And also the roar of many waters gathers up the prophet Ezekiel, who says the same of the voice of God. Now, these descriptions of a powerful voice of the risen Christ are arresting, communicating his authority, in other words, an authority which all the earth can hear and must be obeyed. The trumpet and the roar of the waters of our Savior's voice are to drown out all other voices. Now, what other voices could there be? The ones, I would suggest, that call Christian believers away from obedience, away from the true faith and holiness that marks those who know God and obey their Savior. That is John's question for us, isn't it? Are you inclining your ear to the blasting roar of our Savior's voice in the Scriptures? Or are you listening for the siren song of the enemies of God and his people? 
Now, John tells us three more things about Jesus in verse 16. In first, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, the stars are going to be explained in just a moment. Second, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This is a symbolic way to say that Jesus will speak decisive words of judgment, first used by the prophet Isaiah. And third, when John writes that when he saw Jesus, he fell to his feet as though dead, we can well understand how the glory of the Lord overwhelmed him. We see the same example in the prophet Daniel that we see here. Because he tells us that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What is he describing here? He describes the painful brightness of the sun on which we cannot hold our gaze. All this then is gathered as Jesus asserts his authority and repeats his commission in verses 17 through 20. Now notice right away that Jesus does not leave John. He tells him that he should not be afraid because he is the first and the last. Jesus is what God is. But there is more that Jesus is the living one. Death has no power to hold him. Still more, having died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and having been raised from the dead, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? It means that Jesus is in control of who gets locked up and who gets liberated. This is why he tells John not to be afraid. Though Jesus is terrifying in his holiness to all sinners, he died to pay the penalty for sin. And by virtue of his resurrection, he now holds the keys to death and hell. So to be told not to fear him points John to the fact of what? That his sins are forgiven. The presence of sin may have caused John in the brightness of Jesus's purity to be unendurable and so fall to the ground. But Jesus comes to him and touches him and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, because all those who trust in Jesus have their sins forgiven, and he saves all who trust in him. My dear friends, if you do not know God, which is to say if you do not trust in Jesus, let me assure you of his trustworthiness, and let me urge you to trust him right now. Jesus then repeats his command to write, but it is right therefore. So here's my usual question. What is the therefore therefore? Well, the command rests on what has preceded it, both on the grounds of Jesus's glory that John has just seen and on Jesus's authority to tell him not to fear because Jesus has conquered sin, death, and hell. So finally, in verse 20, Jesus explains to John what? The mystery of the seven stars, the seven gold lampstands. Saying the stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, many speculate on the identity of the angels, but I don't think John's focus is here. 
Rather, it is on the number seven, that sense of fullness and completeness. His focus, in other words, remains on the perfections of our Savior. And that is where we should be also, our focus being on Christ. Christ holds, what, the seven stars in his right hand, which means that he has the ultimate authority over all the church. That he is among the lampstands means that he is present with his church. And the incomparable glory of the risen Christ motivates believers of those churches to hear, mark, and understand what John has been commissioned to write. The splendor of the heavenly king attracts attention and compels obedience in the churches to whom John writes. The risen Christ in glory summons obedience from believers, from his churches. This captivating description of the sovereign Lord Christ, the King and the Messiah, assures all those who hear John's letter, which includes you and me, that Jesus is to be worshipped and obeyed because of his ultimate, surpassing worth and power. His authority is such as one who holds the keys of death and Hades, that he controls the earthly and the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child who ever has drawn breath on this earth. Therefore, your response to Jesus, as he is revealed in this passage, determines whether you will rule with him or will be slain by the sword that comes from his mouth in judgment. Because he is risen. He is indestructible, unconquerable. He is Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.